All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we're so thankful for uh, the opportunity it is to gather this morning to be encouraged and challenged by uh, this time of fellowship and this time in your word. Um, God, I pray that you would be speaking this morning, God, speaking to our hearts, encouraging us, um, just continuing to let the gospel uh, take further root in our hearts. Um, God, we recognize that for those of us who follow you, um, the gospel's been planted and we're continually clinging to it the rest of our lives, being drawn closer and closer to Jesus and uh, knowing him more and more each and every day. Um, it's not a once and for all, it's a once and then a continued growth of sanctification, growing closer to uh, likeness of Jesus. And so God, we just admit this morning that we, we need the gospel today as much as we did when we, when we first testified to it. So we pray that you'd be with us in our time this morning, that you'd encourage us with your word and uh, strengthen us with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, so I had like three or four different tracks of illustrations to go off of, so I've got all the notes of those, so they're kind of scattered this morning, so we'll see which ones pop together as we go through here. But um, I want to start with this question. You've heard the phrase, uh, time heals all wounds. True? Not true. <laughs> Not true. Does time heal all wounds? No, no, absolutely not. You're emphatic about that. Yes. You guys already have some deep wounds that like aren't healing. Jeez, the emphatic experience of these youngsters is uh, concerning to me. What? Right. Would would time heal? My, oh, that's a good point. It's a great point. Some some very physical wounds we're talking about. <laughs> oh man. Uh, straight, straight into it. Um, <laughs> oh man! So uh, today we're looking at this moment um, where Jesus is in in prayer in Gethsemane, and you know it's easy to go fast through Scripture, especially like uh, the men were reading last spring, I guess it was, and we're reading the full Bible. And did we do the full Bible in six months? Is that what we did? Is that what we did? The full, we're crazy. That's insane. You know, it can be very easy when you go quickly through Scripture to like miss the depth and and uh, wonderful nature of Scripture. And so it's really helpful to slow down and comprehend it, understand it better. Um, and the ladies, conversely, are reading the whole Bible in two years. So that's probably you know maybe maybe the approach. But we wanted the real quick fifty thousand level uh, view of the whole arc of Scripture. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, what I'm struggling with throughout this time is just how, how God felt this moment in Gethsemane, right? Um, and how long has he felt this moment, you know? Like, what is it to be God who comes in flesh and walks in the way he did? And so today we're looking at uh, this, this time in Gethsemane, and I think what you'll notice is Jesus is feeling something that the disciples have no idea what is going to happen. They, they just don't feel the moment the way Jesus does. I mean, you, you have felt the moment before, right? Like in your life, like maybe, did anybody play sports younger? Okay, yeah, that may be an obvious question. There's some sports players, okay. Um, how did it feel to practice? 
Depends on the day. Did you want to practice? No. You did? Okay. You wanted to practice? Yeah? Okay. No? Looks like 50. How many of you like to run suicides across the gym? How, how about conditioning? How many of you enjoyed the conditioning portion of practice? How many wanted to do that? No? Yeah? Uh, so, Luke, full athlete right here. Full athlete. He's like, actually, actually pretty great. <laughs> um, thanks, Luke. You're just trashing my whole illustration here. Um, that's good. So, there, but there's a difference, right, between the feeling you have when you're just practicing and you're like, okay, this is my skill, I'm trying to get better at this, and that moment when the game has started, right? I, I, rem I remember playing in junior high basketball, okay, like nothing major, but the difference between, yeah, yeah, how are you so surprised? I was on the traveling team, okay? I was pretty good. I sat the A bench. I sat the A bench. I got in probably 30 seconds of an A game, probably, you know, at least. Anyway... The feeling that you have before a game compared to before practice is just totally different. Like when you're on the bus, you go into, uh, go into wherever you're going to play or whatever, you get there, you're like, got your, got your bag, you're rolling into some, you know, some visiting locker room, you know, the game starts, you're like, am I going to get put in, which is obviously was a no for me usually. Um, but, but that moment when, when the coach looks down at you, Farrell, you're in, he's like, there is a, a moment there that you are feeling just like, oh my gosh, I've got to go out there and actually do the thing that I've been practicing to do for a long time, right? It's similar like the, the adrenaline when you're in Oklahoma, okay, and, or, or Florida in a hurricane, but in Oklahoma with tornadoes, like the, the day may be there, you're like, okay, look like there's a threat of severe weather, I kind of know what I'm supposed to do, but when a siren starts ringing in your town, you're like, Okay, you feel that moment heavy, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in Mississippi that feel that, have felt that moment over the past uh, couple days uh, with tornadoes that ran through there. And, and when that happens, this, the heightened sense of adrenaline is pumping through your veins. It doesn't matter, okay, if you were tired, if you didn't get enough sleep, if you've been going all week and, and you've been up for 24 hours or whatever, when a, when a tornado siren rings, you, you, are in, uh, you are in motion. You're going to safety as soon as possible. And so the difference we see here in Gethsemane between Jesus and how he's feeling versus the disciples and how they're feeling, it's like the disciples are at practice still. They're like sitting around on the bench, like goofing off, playing some sort of game. And Jesus is in the game. Like it's the final shot type of in the game. And the adrenaline difference between them is, couldn't be more contrasted. The disciples do not feel what is happening, and Jesus is pouring his very soul out, his body out for them. And, and so as we go through this, you'll see that, that contrast between, the, between Jesus and the disciples and just how powerful it is what Jesus is going through and how alone he truly feels. Mark 14, verses 32 to 38. What happens here in the first section is a description of Jesus' time in Gethsemane. And so there's three times that he's going to go to prayer. And so we're going to read about those three efforts in prayer that he walks through. The first uh, fullest description is in verses 32 to 38. It says this, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be 
greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you, sleep? Are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus comes um, to this place called Gethsemane, which is uh, around, uh, is basically an olive grove there, and it's below the city, so it's down in the valley there. Um, and all of his disciples come with him, but he takes with him Peter, James, and John just a little bit further. I mean, if you're Peter, James, and John, and you, you're the leaders that you think you are already and profess to be, you would think that you would recognize, oh, every time Jesus takes us three away, something important is about to happen. Um, and you would think that the adrenaline would start pumping in for them. And so they go and step away, and, and Jesus pours out his heart to them and says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then he leaves them, goes a little bit further. And he falls to the ground praying to the Lord if it would would be possible that this hour might pass. This hour that Jesus himself has known about since the foundation of the earth. This hour that he has known he was headed toward as soon as uh, Adam and Eve took the apple and ate it, took the fruit and ate it. We don't have this apple. Took the fruit and ate it, right? From that moment, he, he knows that ahead of him is this sacrifice that will bring back humanity. And as he comes up to it, he says to the Father, if it's possible, let this hour pass. He cries out and says, Abba. Not Father in heaven, but Dad. Dad, help me. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus in this moment is is feeling everything. He's feeling all our sin. He's feeling all our shame. He's not just feeling it as God He's feeling it as man. Crying out to his dad to save him, knowing that dad could swoop in right now and, and remove this moment and just bring me straight up to heaven. And I could disappear and no one even know where I went. He cries out to his dad. When that motion of prayer, that pouring out, I mean, you, you may have been there in times of prayer where you just go before the Father and you're kneeling and, and you pour out your heart to Him and then, then maybe He brings you back and you pour out your heart some more and that moment closes and, um, and you kind of feel like, okay, I've kind of gotten all of it out of my chest. I've heard from the Lord and this time is kind of ending. Jesus then goes back and, and finds His disciples. And to Peter, the rock, he says, Simon, are you asleep? You couldn't watch with me for one hour? You couldn't, couldn't watch in prayer for what is happening for one hour? I've told you that 
my soul is longing unto death right now, and you couldn't stay with me when I asked you to stay with me just for an hour. And he commands them again, watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Jesus knows what it's like to feel like his flesh is weak. He is feeling weak in his flesh, in his humanity. He is crying out to his dad in heaven for this to be over and not happen. But his spirit is fully willing to submit to this. And so it says in verse 39, And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So he doesn't record them, right? But what he said the second time is the, the same. Dad, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but what you will. I mean, put yourself there. He's crying that out. He's probably there for you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Like the first time he was there for an hour. Think about your time of prayer, right? Like, how often this week has anybody prayed for an hour straight? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, that's rhetorical. But I haven't, for sure. I don't know. I can't actually, I can't remember the time that I last prayed for an hour straight. I think it's happened in my life, but I don't know when it was. Jesus prays for an hour, and then he goes back again and gets on his knees before the Father in heaven. He says the same words, Dad, if it's possible, let this pass. He comes back the second time, verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they, they did not know what to answer him. So he comes to them and says, hey guys, Looks like you're about to doze off again. They just don't answer. It reminds me of when he's telling them, it reminded me of when he was telling them in like chapters 9 and 10, I think it was, we're headed to Jerusalem, we're headed to Jerusalem, we're headed to Jerusalem. The first time he says it, and, and Simon Peter objects and says, no, Lord, surely not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan and confronts him very emphatically. The second time Jesus says that, the disciples hear it, and it says, they didn't ask any questions, because they were scared of what he might say. They couldn't respond. And the same here. And so in verses 41 and 42, um, it jumps right in and says, and he came to them a third time, but just remind you, but between, and he came to him a third time, he had gone away ag again. So just like insert a little parenthesis in there. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. Because that's what he was doing between the second time he confronted him and the third time he confronted him. Was going back alone and pouring out his heart to the Father. And going, Dad, if you can take this from me, take it from me. But not as I will but what you will. So verse 41, he came to them a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed 
into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. His cry to them, his call to them was, you guys, the, the moment I've been talking to you about since we started this whole thing, the moment I, I warned you about when we set our track to Jerusalem, this is what's about to happen. My soul is crushed to death right now. I need you to stay and pray. I wrestled this week with, like, why does he need them to pray, you know? Why does Jesus need them to stop and pray for him, you know? Um, and I, I don't know. I don't have an answer, really. I, I, I don't know. It's like, think about that for a moment. Jesus says, I need you guys to pray. I mean, he does tell them to pray that you might not fall into temptation. So part of it is for them. But I think that Jesus is saying, like, I need your prayer. I need your support here. I need you to be in this with me. I need you to feel this moment the way that I am feeling this moment. And how frustrated he would be to go back to them over and over again. I mean, could you imagine, like, you're with a friend playing video games, right? And they're in the room, like, uh, hey, I just got a call. Like, my dad's sick or, you know, whatever. And I'm just crushed right now. And, like, you went to another room, right? And you just start praying for an hour. And you come back, and the friend is just, like, playing Xbox. Like, all right, could you pray for me? Or, like, I'm, I got to pray again. Like, I'm going to go pray again. And to come back again, and they're, like, eating a hot dog. What, like, that's kind of the contrast between Jesus and the disciples right now. Jesus is... Jesus knows what is about to happen. He has seen it coming. It, Judas has left and prepared and, and, and gathered the chief priests and gathered a Roman guard, a cohort, 600 men potentially, to come and arrest Jesus in this garden. And Jesus knows. He says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. In verses 42 to 50, 43 to 52, we have the um, betrayal recorded by Mark here, and it says this, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, always noting that Judas was one of the twelve. Um, his proximity to Jesus didn't keep him from lacking faith in Jesus. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. I've never really understood this, like, moment, because I'm like, isn't it obvious who Jesus is? Like, isn't it pretty clear? But I guess you've got to think of, like, it being night cover, and, and you know, there's been, a, like, a Roman guard that's been enlisted to come be a part of the arrest, and they're not really sure, like, if there's going to be a revolt, and so the plan is, okay, if, if it's unclear, I'm just going to go up to Jesus, because I know which one he is, or as soon as I recognize his face and go to him, I'm going to say this and give him a big kiss. And so verse 45, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. The picture that's given of Judas coming up to Jesus, I mean, it's completely fake, right? It's entirely fake. Rabbi, 
as if he's so happy to see the teacher again. Embraces him and gives him a big sloppy kiss on the cheek to make it real clear that this is the guy. But it's completely false. Judas knows it's fake. Jesus knows it's fake. It's only there as a sign of betrayal. As it happens, verse 47 is put in here, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark kind of leaves this vague, but from other accounts, it does seem like this is probably Peter. Um, John 18 records Simon Peter having a sword, drawing it, and striking the high priest's servant to cut off his right ear. Um, Peter, apparently now, has been quickened to the fact that maybe he should be aware of what is going on and, and you know, act. His action is far too little, far too late, and completely meaningless. So much so that Jesus like reverses it and puts his ear back on. <laughs> Peter, that was dumb. Let's put the ear back on here. Now let's go away. Jesus then cries out to, really to the chief priest's benefit, to the benefit of those hearing, have you come out against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Isaiah 53:12 says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The scriptures are indeed fulfilled that Christ was treated as a robber, caught under captivity of night by a Roman guard. Mark then records what Jesus already told them would happen, that they all flee. Mark 14, verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And to make this just a little bit more emphatic, he records the young man who followed him just a little bit further. We don't know who this guy is. Maybe, you know, maybe John, maybe Peter, maybe Mark. We don't know. The young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This young man wanted to follow, but he, he didn't even care if he has to run away naked when he gets found. They see, try to seize him too, and he wiggles away and runs, right? A lot to digest here, a lot to uh, come away with from here, and, and so I'm going to walk through a few things that I want us to take away um, there's a bit to follow there at the bottom on the verses. So. Um, so a few things to go with as we reflect on this passage. First, God became a man. God became a man. 
Three times in the text today, Jesus cries out to his dad for this cup to pass. Say, Dad, take this from me. You have the ability. If it's your will, you can stop it. So please, stop it. It's the most vulnerable moment of Jesus' life, and it shows us what it means for him to be fully human. I mean, it's this moment in the garden where he is truly yielding himself. And for the next couple weeks, we'll look at his uh, trial and his uh, crucifixion and his resurrection. But it's this moment where he's going, this is the time, God. If you want to stop this, Dad, you can stop this right now. As Marcus was reflecting about just, we can't comprehend this exchange. It's not fair. We, we aren't getting what we deserve. I, I just reflected on this fact that I don't understand the Lord. I don't understand him. And like I know what he's revealed in his word. I know what he's told me about the gospel and what it is, and I, and I believe it completely. But man, can, can anybody comprehend him? I don't understand how he experiences this, the way he experiences it. And at first I always think of this moment and go like, oh, well, he's God, so pff, no big deal, right? Isaiah 55, 7 and 9 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We can't comprehend him. We, we, we can't even, the Lord is revealing to us that his ways are further away from our ways than we can even comprehend. We're not meant to know fully how he experiences this. But I think we are to recognize it. That the God of heaven would sympathize so perfectly with our experience that it would come as a man and feel, feel our humanity. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. This is Jesus. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Don't give um, Gethsemane a pass to God because he's God. He felt this more than you will ever feel it or I will ever feel it. 
He felt it stronger and longer than any of us can comprehend this moment. In Luke's description, he, he puts it this way in the garden, that this is how Jesus was experiencing it. It says in verse 42, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. In verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't know if this is like first, second, or third time that he went back to pray, okay? But after an angel strengthens him, he continues in prayer so earnestly that blood is coming out of him. I haven't prayed that hard at all. I haven't felt anything that hard ever. So don't let um, our tendency to think that because he's God, he just could, he can easily walk through this moment without a problem. Because Jesus is fully God, but he's fully man. And he felt this fully as a man, crying out to his daddy three times in a row, bleeding in prayer. He feels it deeper than we can imagine. It made me think of the verse from 2 Peter verses 3 to 8. That says this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. And I was thinking about that, just that like, okay, between Gethsemane and the cross is like half a day, 12 hours or something like that, potentially. 12 to 16, 12 to 18 hours or something. It's like a short time. I mean, look at God. I mean, he's infinite, so... What's that? A thousand years is like one day to God. So time moves faster for God than we can comprehend. It's like, done, right? Done. In his experience. But also, one day is like a thousand years. This next weekend is the, or next weekend, weekend or after next, whatever, is the final four. Okay, they'll be playing basketball in Houston. And I know you all care about it heavily, so I'm excited. You should, because Florida Atlantic University, one of the top four. Anybody pick them? I did not. Um, Florida Atlantic, Boca Raton, it's great. Alabama, they lost, they're done, yeah. But I've got Texas still, you know, to the, ch- anyway, nobody cares. Um, But in Houston, there'll be 50,000 people watching this tiny little wood floor and going, cheering on this thing. Now, I got this picture when I was reading this a thousand years, this is one day to the Lord, and just that, like, God, if he were a spectator of the final four, experiences that moment from every person's vantage point simultaneously as it's happening. Let that sit with you for a second. I can't contain that much emotion and feeling. I mean, to feel both the agony of defeat and the 
there's some beautiful phrase that they use for that one shining moment, that one shining moment in the agony of that's what it is, okay. It's lost on you, it's okay, it's fine. Look up one shining moment, and it'll, it'll change your life. Um, but to feel that emotion in both directions fully for all the people that are watching. The same is true of Gethsemane. At this time, he's feeling everything that we have put on him for all time in this time. Imagine feeling the penalty of separation from God for everybody. Billions upon billions. And and feeling it and knowing it fully. I can barely comprehend my own emotions. Jesus poured himself out. Hebrews 5, 7 and 9 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he, offered, what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of salvation, eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus felt this completely, bigger than we could ever feel anything. And so we shouldn't look at the moment and go, well, he's God, so it's like, check the box. You know, I mean, he was planning to do it, he did it, fine. You know, it's just on his agenda to, like, die for us. No big deal. Instead of having that, I think, tendency in our heart when we look at these passages and go, oh, it's, oh, it's Jesus' suffering, I mean, he's God, so, of course, he can handle it. We should look at his humanity and go, thank you, Jesus. And humbly be grateful for all he's poured out. God became a man. Furthermore, he went through this And Mark has been really emphatic about this for the whole chapter 14. He did this for those who betrayed him. We talked about it some on on our during Thursday night group, but like Mark is the longest, or Mark 14 is the longest chapter of the whole text. It's like 73 verses or something like that, right? And usually we're like, hey, don't pay attention to the verses and chapters. Those are added in by somebody else, you know, whatever. Like, that's what you do need to know that, that they're extra biblical, they're extra information. The headers also change every translation. So, you know, those aren't gospel either. So, anyway, um, FY on that. But we should recognize that someone really smart did do the chapter divisions and the verse divisions and all of that. Like, somebody smart did that. I can't remember the guy's name, some guy on horseback, was a preacher, whatever. Um, Anyway, the whole of chapter 14, the whole focus of it, I mean, every scene that we have seen is this picture of the faithful son, Jesus, heading to the cross with all resolve, and around him, over and over, the disciples betraying him and walking away. 
The first week we saw the anointing for his burial juxtaposed with Judas committing to betray him. The second week in chapter 14 we saw uh, Jesus identifying with the bread and wine surrounded by his declaration, revelation to them that they would all fall away. This week we see Jesus crying out for his closest disciples to pray with him and all they can do is sleep. And when he's captured, they all fled, verse 50. Even the one that kind of tried to follow ran away naked. Last week we saw them, all of them, just as Peter let out, he said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Cut to next scene. Bye. Amos 2.16 says, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. You wonder why Mark included that. It's like, yeah, we knew it was coming. And this is the fact. This is the gospel. We have all betrayed Jesus. And he was still faithful to us. Romans 3, 10 and 11, as is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is my sin that held this moment for Jesus, that put him there, that made him go through this time. It is my sin. While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, yet he died for us. So I can't understand him, and I don't pretend to comprehend how beautiful and how powerful the exchange of the God in heaven um, coming down to become fully man, that I may be fully righteous. I can't comprehend it in my human flesh, in my comprehension of my mind. I can't understand how it's possible. But his instructions have been absolutely clear throughout the New Testament and throughout the teaching of Jesus the time has been fulfilled the kingdom of God is here what do you now repent and believe he went to the cross in obedience that he might be eternal salvation for all those who obey him. I didn't really, you know, I sent out on band that just an encouragement to read Hebrews 12 this week. And even as I sent it, I didn't really, like, I didn't have it tied to the sermon at all. Just like the Lord put it on my heart. Like, what a great chapter. You know, it's like literally why I put it there. Not thinking that, you know, whatever, it's going to be part of this conclusion or whatever. But like the day after, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like literally where we land this thing when we think about Jesus. God has called us to endure. 
as Jesus endured. He didn't call us to raise our hand and come down at the altar call one time and then just call it good. He's called us to endure. To continually, consistently place our faith in Christ, repent and believe every day. So I'll read it for you now, and just in case you didn't check band or didn't, didn't read. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 has always been one of my favorite verses, and it's the race of endurance. This call to endurance is actually throughout the whole chapter. There's three more times that it says you need to endure, which I hadn't noticed before. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Like your race. Don't look at somebody else's race. Look at your race. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for us. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus has done that for you. Not only in prayer before it happened, but literally at the cross, shed his blood for us. And this at the hand of sinners. Verses 5 to 17, he calls us to endure discipline from the Lord as though we were his sons. Jesus knew what it was to be a son. He cried out in Gethsemane, Dad, save me from this moment. Five to seventeen says, and you have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Think again about Jesus in Gethsemane. The moment felt painful to him, more so than anybody could ever feel. Yet the yield to his obedience in that moment 
was righteousness, not just for him, but for all. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Yeah, it doesn't feel good when difficult things happen to us. It didn't feel good to Jesus when he submitted to the Father's will to go to the cross on our behalf. It doesn't feel good when trials and tribulations come our way, whether from uh, the earth itself or our own doing or those around us that we love. It doesn't feel good. But God is present with you, has felt the moment more than you could ever feel the moment, and he is right there ready to hold you and comfort you and strengthen you, not because he's often just powerful, but because he sympathizes completely with how you feel. No one can empathize with you more than the Lord can empathize with you in your suffering and your frustrations. He knows it full well. He cried out to his dad for hours while those who were supposed to be closest with him were sleeping. His call to us is to endure as the Son endured. The writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg to no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. He's describing when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and the law was being given to Moses, the mountain was covered with fire. And if anyone touched the mountain, they die. He's saying, this is not the mountain you've come to. You've not come to the mountain of the law. They could not endure that order. They were unholy. They were broken. They couldn't stand before the holiness of God. If even a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But this is how you endure. Because you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You can endure 
not because you're able to fulfill the law of the Old Testament, the expectations of the religious, the expectations of yourself, but rather because you come to a mountain on which Jesus died for you and traded His righteousness to be yours. This is the mountain you've come to, and this is how you're able to endure anything that you face. Because God has endured it with you and will endure it with you. Twenty-five to twenty-nine. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, that is Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. The Lord warns us from heaven, repent and believe. Spend your life obeying the Lord Jesus, and the result will be eternal salvation. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus came to this moment and felt it completely. And he went through it so more powerfully than we could even imagine or comprehend. And he did it to found and perfect our faith. To, to show us that the bedrock of who we are as followers of Jesus is ones who would just lay ourselves down for the Lord and let him consume all the selfish, broken desires of our hearts and purify us that we would stand righteous before our God, not on the strength of our effort in the law, but rather in the strength of his grace at the cross. So I can't understand God, but man, I'm in love. My heart is set on him. And there's nothing more I want than to do his will. Not going to be perfect in that. And praise God that I don't have to be. Jesus said to the disciples, as they're sleeping while he's praying before he goes to the cross, how graceful is, is this statement to them? Sons, your spirit is willing. I see it. I see your spirit, and it is willing. But your flesh is weak. I, there can't be more graceful words spoken to a bunch of yahoos. <laughs> like, what are they doing? 
sleeping in this moment. Yet Jesus knows, man, if they really understood, they'd go through it. Because he sees them. He says, your spirit is willing. Your flesh is so weak. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, so challenged and encouraged by what you've done for us. Um, we look forward to celebrating your resurrection. Um, but God, I pray um, in the next couple weeks that, that we would feel your emotion, your, that we would just know how difficult this was for you. And that you went through it on our behalf. God, we testify that we, we will never be able to comprehend it. We will never be able to fathom how deep this love truly is. But just getting a drop of it now in our lives has awakened our souls to praise you to give you reverent worship, to commit the rhythm of our life, to be one in which we submit it to you. We set aside a time like this to, to say, God, you have my whole week. I'm not coming here to check off a box. I'm coming here to say that you are in control of the week ahead. And so I'll spend this time today singing you songs with my brothers and sisters, proclaiming your word and receiving it, praying for one another. In acknowledgement that you have the whole, that I submit to you all seven, God. And God, as we offer a tithe, we offer it, not, not so, so as to fulfill your provision for other people, but rather as a praise of worship to your kingdom, God, that you can have all of my life, not just a tenth or whatever. God, it is yours, it is from you, and it is to you. And in giving to you financially, I'm just giving back what's yours. And acknowledging that the rest is yours too. And God, as we come to you in prayer, we, we want to acknowledge, God, that all our thoughts, all our plans, all our ways fail in comparison to what you could drop in our spirit right now. And we yield the whole thing. So God, I pray for us that we would see how much you endured on our behalf and that you would make us strong, that you would strengthen us, that we too would endure, that we'd offer you an acceptable and reverent worship, that we'd acknowledge that our God is a consuming fire, and we desire him to burn up all that is within us that is not of you.
pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.